If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. The finish line is in sight for us uh, as we have been studying this uh, New Testament letter for quite some time now, but Paul has still still has some important things to say to his first century audience, and I think as we take God's word into our lives and into our hearts here in the 21st century, that the Holy Spirit has important things for us still to hear in this letter. It's good to have the opportunity to preach to you once again. I want to thank Austin last week for opening God's word to us. Those of you who were here and worship, no, you, none of you were here. Uh, you were all there in that little camera, uh, I forgot. But those of you who worshiped with us, not here, but at home, uh, you might have already noticed that the passage that we're looking at today is eerily similar to the passage that Austin preached last week. Uh, in fact, that is not a mistake, that's not a typo, there is significant overlap. Now, I'm not re-preaching this text because Austin somehow did something wrong or didn't do it sufficient. Uh, That's not what I want you to hear. Here's how I want you to think about it. Last week, Austin, out of of Galatians chapter 5, in these verses that we're going to look at and read again this morning, Austin did a a high-altitude pass, we might say, 30,000 feet. He flew us over this passage as he reminded us of of the battle that wages with our flesh, our need to walk by the Spirit, warring against our sin and, and pursuing righteousness. But what he didn't do, because he didn't have time to do this, and he told me, we talked about it beforehand, I knew he wasn't going to do this, is to look a little bit more closely at what Paul specifically says in Galatians chapter 5 about that warring against sin, about that pursuing righteousness. And so what I'm essentially doing this morning is I, I'm, I'm circling, I'm, I'm banking the airplane and we're going to come back over this passage, but we're going to come back over it at a thousand feet rather than 30,000 feet. So much of the terrain will be similar, but my hope is that you will be able to see a bit more detail, a bit more contour in the landscape of Galatians 5. Now, I wasn't sure, as Austin and I talked about him preaching, I wasn't sure that I was going to do this. The, the text itself certainly doesn't demand, to do, demand that we do this. I mean, Paul, as he lists the vices uh, that, that he introduces to the Galatians as he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't spend a lot of time unpacking what love is, what patience is, and, and, and so forth. But I've decided to do this for three reasons. One is because in the midst of this letter, as we've preached it over the weeks and now months, we've heard a lot of Paul's emphasis that, that the law cannot be added to Christ. Right, That as we just sang, we are justified, we are made right by Christ and Christ alone. Hopefully you've gotten that message, because that's Paul's message, and that's the message of the gospel. Christ plus nothing equals everything. 
But Paul is also concerned, not just about justification, he's concerned about sanctification, what flows from the gospel, or as Austin put it last week, what does the gospel do in my life? And so, because of Paul's desire to think about our sanctification, I want to think about it a little bit this morning. That's the first reason. Second, I think, and I believe this is true because it's true of me, that we all need help to create space in our lives to take stock, to examine ourselves, to identify specific things in our lives and, and begin to strategize about how we might root those things out, to see areas that need growth and to respond intentionally. In the hurriedness of life, this is, this is not our go-to. So that's the second reason why we're taking another pass at a lower altitude. And the third reason is, while it's always a good time to think about these things that Paul outlines here, we particularly need the kind of character that is spoken of here. We particularly need this kind of character as the church of Jesus Christ in the road that lies ahead for us. And so that's why I've entitled the sermon, Character Matters. Character matters, and these are matters of character that we're going to talk about this morning. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I are called to be a community of loving relationships, unity in diversity, and in many ways, this has never been harder to do. And so, yes, I'm beating this dead horse again but I think it needs to be spoken. So I hope and pray that God's word challenges us. I hope that there is good news found here for us. So listen carefully as I read Galatians chapter five. Would you stand out of honor for God's word? Galatians chapter five, we're gonna start in verse 18 and I'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 26. Galatians chapter five, starting in verse 18. Paul says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Glory be to the Father. 
and be seated. Reading this passage again, Paul puts two lists before us. Various colors that make up two portraits. A portrait in verse 19, beginning in verse 19, a portrait of the works of the flesh. And then in verse 22, a portrait of the fruit of the Spirit. And so as we work our way through this passage, I want to frame our thinking in our hearts on these two lists via these two truths. And really all I'm doing is is rewording the exhortations that Paul gives here. And the first truth is this, fight against your natural way. Fight against your natural way, or as Paul says real clearly in verse 24, crucify the flesh. There are certain phrases that we might say to our kids trying to figure out their place in the world, trying to figure out what career they might choose. Phrases like, do do what you love, do what comes naturally to you. That may be good advice for our 19 and 20 year olds, but these are not phrases that we ought to be saying to our flesh in the battle of sanctification. And yet the world proclaims, to quote Sheryl Crow, the musician, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. The word here is sarks. Austin talked about it last week, the Greek word meaning flesh, these human feelings, these human desires and pleasures that can, that can consume us to the exclusion of the Spirit of God. And in other words, it's not that the physical is bad, it's simply that our natural way is to abuse those desires and to abuse those pleasures, which is why I say fight against your natural way. Paul says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now this is different than Galatians 2.22, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Do you hear the difference? Verse 24, those who belong to Jesus have crucified, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified. You see, here, here it is we who follow Jesus Christ, who belong to Jesus Christ, certainly by the power of his spirit, it is we who have nailed that flesh to the cross to die. In a sense, we are the executioners. And we originally did that when we came to Jesus through our initial repentance. So in a sense, it's final. 
It's not coming down from the cross. But here's the thing. The death of crucifixion is gradual, isn't it? Jesus hung on that cross for hours. It's painful. Jesus cried out in agony. And so we take that imagery into our Christian lives, that imagery that Paul gives us in verse 24, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh. And we are reminded that we can't show any sympathy to our flesh that is dying on that cross. We can't take it down from the cross, nurse it back to health, play with it a little bit, but as one of my seminary professors said, we pound the nails in a little deeper, constantly, because we recognize that new life comes through that death, through that crucifying of the flesh. See, Jesus used similar imagery when he was on earth. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Paul will say to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So that's what I want to do a little bit of this morning, a little bit of the hard, painful, gradual work of exposing the natural way, of letting the Holy Spirit turn up the dimmer switch in our lives, revealing all those things that we don't see when the lights are down, all those stains in the carpet, all those cracks in the wall. Verses 19 through 21 here in Galatians chapter 5 can be summarized into three categories of sin that certainly were prevalent in Roman culture, which is why Paul alludes to them and talks about them, but they are in our world today. We could spend a lot of time talking about each of these. I'm not going to do that. I just want to briefly walk through, I want to fly through the first two and then camp out on the last one a little bit and let it lead us into the second point. The first category of sin that he brings up is sexual and substance abuse. We could categorize it that way. Listen to the words, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, and orgies. Well, at least we don't have any issue with this kind of stuff in our day and age, right? No, of course we do. We live in this sexually confused and sexually broken culture, a sexually brazen culture that bombards us with lies and imagery. And so promiscuity and pornography and every kind of perversion is around us. So Paul is reminding the church, brothers and sisters, especially my brothers, don't let the lies about sexuality come down from that cross. You've nailed them there. They need to be crucified. Paul tells the Corinthian church, don't even hang around with this kind of stuff. Don't even play with it, but flee. Run in the opposite direction. And where we run is to Jesus, our great high priest who knows our weakness, 
who knows what you're feeling, who has won the battle, who has secured the victory. So that's the first category. The second category is false religion. And that, this is identified by the two words idolatry and witchcraft. Now the Greeks had vivid images and experiences in this realm, right? Temples throughout the Roman Empire to false gods. For us, it's a much more subtle thing, right? Counterfeit gods. Any good thing from God that we have exalted to the place of an ultimate thing. Our careers, our spouses, our reputations, our kids, our kids' reputations. Paul says, beware. The life in the Spirit strives to keep those things in their proper places. So sexual and substance abuse, false religion, and then the third category of of sin here that Paul brings up in verses 19 through 21 is this, are the sins of relationship. Remember, this entire letter has been, address, uh, has been written addressing conflict in the church, right? These false teachers who have come in and questioned Paul's authority and taught a gospel other than the gospel that Paul taught, which was no gospel at all. Paul's concern is that those who are walking by the Spirit deal with one another in ways that are contrary to the controversies of the world. And yet our, our natural way, our flesh-driven, passionate Pride so easily and so often sours those relationships. As we engage those who think differently than us. Now, Paul would, of course, would, of course, agree that there are some things that we must divide over, right? Namely, the heart of the gospel message. He told those, things, he told those, those teachers who were perverting the gospel, get out. There's no place for you here. And yet in other things, as we'll kind of move into this section, second truth, in other things, in secondary matters, we need an abundance of patience and love. There's a 17th century German Lutheran theologian, Rubertus Meldinius, who has described this quote, you've probably heard it before, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. This is what I hope for, for the life of our community, for the life of our church. But it will only come as we battle against the natural way. Particularly these sins of relationship, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, envy. Will only come as we battle against those things as we look at Jesus and keep in step with the Spirit. And that's where we turn our hearts. Let's get away from the negative, from those fleshly things that we have crucified on the cross and that we need to keep there on the cross. 
We fight against the natural way. And secondly, we step in the way of the Spirit. We step in the way of the Spirit. This is just another way of saying verse 25, that we live by the Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, for the, for the believer, it's, it's inevitable. John 15 Jesus' words about the vine and the branches, true believers abide in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, as we rest in the vine that is Jesus, absorbing life from it, his life into our life, fruit is inevitably born. And notice the fruit of 522 is singular, not Plural. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are. He says the fruit of the Spirit. And that's not because all those things are the same thing. It's because they equal one spiritual life. A life of holiness. A life of godliness. The kind of life brothers and sisters, that we ought to be about, that we ought to be after, the kind of life that Jesus himself embodied, and therefore the kind of life that when we attach ourselves to him and gain life from his life, it inevitably flows from that union into our lives. We can't grow it. Only the Spirit of God can grow it, but we can Cultivate it. We can tend to the soil of our hearts and allow the nutrients to soak in. It's what we are made for. 2 Corinthians 3.18, to be transformed into His likeness. Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Ephesians 4.24, to be created to be like God in true holiness. And so, I want us to ask these searching questions. I mean, I pray the Holy Spirit has already challenged you Maybe. With Paul's list of sins, things that you are coddling or or taking down from the cross that ought to be crucified there. But as we move into these positive statements about the fruit of the Spirit, I want us to ask the questions, how have I grown in these things? How do I need to grow in these things? Again, like the first list, we could spend a lot of time here I told my wife this morning, I'm kind of doing a, a middle thing, I, and, I, and I hope it's helpful, because I had two options. One is to just go on and not talk at all about the specifics, not all, talk at all about uh, the, the, uh, the specific words or, or some of the granularity that we find here, or option two was to spend nine weeks, right? We could spend a week on each of these things just unpacking them and importing all of the biblical riches about love and patience and gentleness. And I'm trying to take this middle road that I hope the Holy Spirit uses, that I hope is helpful. Well, I wouldn't say that these, we wouldn't say that these categories are absolute or inspired. One commentator divides the nine fruit of the Spirit into three categories. 
The first category is God word, love, joy, and peace, man word, patience, kindness, goodness, and self word, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think that's kind of helpful, but not absolutely helpful, certainly not inspired, and there's a lot of overlap between those three categories. But if that's helpful for you to frame the fruit of the Spirit, then, then that's wonderful. But let's just start with where Paul begins, where it all begins, and that is love. Everything flows from love. And it begins with a God who is love. A God who has always lived and loved in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, God's love has always been an outward-facing love. So as we abide in that love, through Christ, by His Spirit, we ought to be so saturated with that love that it oozes out of our lives into the lives of others. Love of neighbor, whether it's neighbor here at Ascension within the body of Christ or love of neighbor outside of the body of Christ flows from the love of God in us and for us. And so we meditate on that love. Every day, we saturate ourselves with that love. And hear this, particularly because Paul, in, this con- in the context that Paul is writing in, is deep division being sowed in the church. Remember, biblical love is different than the world's definition of love. Let me read a helpful quote to this end. I can't even remember where I got this. In American culture, love commonly means accepting someone and never judging them. It has no moral component. Viewed this way, love really doesn't shape our convictions, but diffuses them. Love is the wind that blows away the fog of our moral controversies and helps us embrace one another just as we are. But biblical love has a direction. It always moves us towards the good and always moves us towards God. I don't know about you, but I I need more love. By God's grace, stepping in the way of the Spirit, looking upon our Savior, let's cultivate This love. Because love can only produce joy. Right? That's where Paul goes next. 62 times joy is mentioned in the New Testament. The word rejoice is mentioned another 40 times. Amy Carmichael, the American missionary, defined biblical joy as settled happiness. I kind of like that. Settled happiness. 
Joy in the Spirit, joy in the life of Christ is the kind of countenance that was conveyed by Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, in 1 Chronicles 20, where he was facing the onslaught of the enemies around him, and he says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's what I want you to hear. That's the path to joy. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, on, on his love, on the joy before him that sent him to the cross for you and I. Oh, we could spend a lot of time there. Let's jump to the second triad, to these intensely relational characteristics of a spirit-led life. And this is where we'll finish. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That list probably does not describe the false teachers in Galatia. But these were to be the marks of those who were resting in Jesus alone. Those words do not describe the rhetoric and the dialogue of our day. But they are to be the defining marks of those who walk by the Spirit of God. You see, patience is the recognition that we all, all of us, Nate Hitchcock included, we are all works in progress. And that we rarely change overnight by a snap of the finger. Again, when it came to the gospel, the heart of the gospel, Paul was unapologetically decisive. You must get out of the church. But when it comes to what Paul says in Romans 14, as disputable matters, we are to suffer with those who are weak and broken. John Calvin said this, to take everything in good part and to not be easily offended. How hard is this? in a culture that feeds itself on outrage. Particularly in the church, we need a different culture. One pastor says this about the life of the church. He says, to disciple well, people have to be able to think out loud risk enough honesty to reveal their weaknesses and receive patience from others so that they can grow. And so patience acknowledges that we are not a group of people that has all of their stuff together, but we're messy. And we need help. And we need one another. We need the Spirit of Christ. 
We need to abide in Christ that this fruit might be born in us. And so patience is accompanied by kindness, a posture of mildness, not bitterness, not sharp and caustic, but gentleness and its companion humility that seeks to disarm wrath and anger. Jonathan Edwards, another hero of our Reformed church, called it a lamb-like, dove-like spirit, the true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians. Like Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart. Do you get the portrait One of the reasons why I am so excited to study the book Gentle and Lowly together, to simply collectively be enraptured by who Jesus is, by what our life in Him ought to be like as well. A life of stepping in the way of the Spirit, a life of being led by the Spirit, of walking by the Spirit. Our natural selves subdued and fruit born from our connection to that vine. Brothers and sisters, we got to quit. I hope I haven't thrown too much at you. But I hope the Holy Spirit has used something here in Galatians chapter 5, the richness that's found here to, to shine some light in your life, challenging you with the fruit that you bear or need to bear. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Keep the natural life dying on that cross. Cultivate the Spirit-filled life by looking to Jesus, looking back at yourself, and then looking back at Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this challenging passage. Holy Spirit, I pray that your word would not return to you void, but would accomplish all that you attend, intend for it to accomplish in the lives of your people. Father, we want to be a different kind of community in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we love one another, in the way that we resolve conflict with one another, in the way that we engage one another, in the way that we engage the world. And so we ask for your grace to abide in the vine that the fruit that might be born from our branches might be the fruit that is outlined here a fruit that we see clearly as we look and gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You that He has done all that needed to be done. And so even as we challenge our own hearts and challenge our own lives, we give thanks for that sufficiency and pray for the grace to reflect it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.